So conscious leadership, the more awareness I have of what's going on inside of me, what's happening around me, the, I increase the likelihood that I have the impact that I intend. Our intentions and our impact get screwy all the time. I leave the house intending to get from point A to point B. At some point, I go unconscious and I grab my phone. The impact is I get in a wreck. Not what I intended, but it's the impact that I have because I go unconscious. In organization or within any interpersonal relationship, the more unconscious we go, the more the impact that we don't want to have occurs. And sometimes that's harm. Hey everyone, welcome to the People Everywhere Show. I'm Andy Kitson. My co-host is Nikos Givaski. And in this episode, we talk about conscious leadership with Gensi Franz. So a few years ago at Redox, we were in a bit of a funk. We had some big strategic issues to sort out and we were just not getting anywhere. There were a lot of opinions, a lot of feelings, and it sometimes felt like the more we talked, the, the further and further out of alignment we got. It was exhausting. Fortunately, that's when a number of us picked up the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, and it helped. We learned to recognize when we were feeling closed, defensive, and committed to being right, or below the line, to use the conscious leadership terminology, and then how to shift above the line to a place where we were open, curious, and committed to learning. This whole below-the-line, above-the-line framework was so simple and, and so useful. It helped us work through these big issues that we all cared deeply about and have it feel productive, even playful at times. So when Nico and I started this podcast, I knew we had to do an episode on conscious leadership. And I'm delighted that, well, this is that episode and that Gensi is our guide through this. Gensi is a coach. He works with leaders to bring the principles of conscious leadership into their organizations. He is also an academic and an operator. He led the People Org at Uptake, Startup Unicorn, and he holds a PhD in organizational behavior from the University of Illinois, where he still teaches today. This conversation was invigorating and joyful, and the, the day that we had it, it was just absolutely, exactly, precisely the conversation that I needed. So let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Gensi Franz. Gensi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're, we're thrilled to have you. So let's let's talk a bit about the the class that you teach. So, so this is a employee motivation and performance. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah you got that right. You tell us a bit yeah. about just like where do you teach? Like what kind of students? Like, like the you know, kind of like the the course catalog, maybe a description of it, and then we'll dive into like your like the sure. the real take. Yeah, totally. So the class is Employee Performance and Motivation. It's taught at the University of Illinois in um, the School of Labor and Employment Relations. I teach it once a year. And the basis of it is really, why do people work? Like, why do they? What goes into it? What's the thought process? When people change jobs, why do they change jobs? When they're in a job, what makes them deeply satisfied? What makes them deeply engaged? You know, and what I tell employ or the, the students in class one is, we really don't know. <laughs> and, and, and that's just to say individuals are different and, and it is context dependent. And what we do know is we do know there are certain levels that we can pull that people do like autonomy, but autonomy on a line in a factory in Detroit is different than autonomy, you know, at a startup in Madison, Wisconsin. It just is knowledge employees versus you know skilled labor these are going to have different components of what autonomy is and really 
what an organization can allow because of what the product is. And so, you know, on an employee line, autonomy might look like, you know, Kaizen principles um, as a real way to kind of dive into autonomy. And, you know, in tech, it may look more like, you know, the famed Google 20% time just to kind of think crazy stuff up. And so it really depends on what the context is and having appreciation of what that context is. So we spent a lot of time in this class just honoring that and recognizing that there's no there's really no roadmap to slap onto an organization and say this is how you're going to get motivated employees it just doesn't work the other thing big point that we talk about a lot is you know and i think it's a cliche at this point but people leave managers they don't leave organizations or jobs some data to support that and we can all we all know that if you have a really good manager that respects, that empowers, that gives you voice, that listens to you, that provides direction, maybe allows, helps you, supports you in your prioritization of, of tasks, feels good. And as long as the other table stakes are being met, compensation, you know, support, benefits, et cetera, you know, that can make a huge difference in a, an employee's experience and their tenure in the job, how long they want to stay, because organizations are really, at the end of the day, obsessed with attrition and want people to stay as long as they possibly can. And, you know, in some cases to a fault, organizations want people to stay so long that really it doesn't help the individual or the organization. There's some stagnation that occurs. And I think we're seeing some of that, just organizations having more of an appetite for turnover, recognizing how to bring the cost down, how to integrate people quicker, get them up to speed. So we talk about that as well. And, and really a lot of it is around how to have meaningful conversations. So you really signal to an employee, I hear you and I'm supporting you as a human being. It's very easy for organizations. And, you know, we, an organization at the end of the day is just an organism, just like us. We are organisms and organisms need to be fed and organisms get super selfish because they're terrified of dying and an organization is no different. And so in the process of this organization as an organism surviving, it's going to take, and it's going to take from its resources, people. And so how do we as other people within this organization provide support to one another so that not too much is taken, but just enough. And as in the process of giving, we're also receiving through a variety of different things, levers that we can pull. And so, you know, that's where we, um, we spend a lot of our time on those things. What, what can we do so that the, you know, so that all of the organisms involved in the, the organization can, can thrive? including the organization itself. Ooh, I love that analogy. And, and what I heard was was almost like sort of three levels to think about employee motivation. One is sort of the industry and job type perspective of of like what is even possible on a on a assembly line versus, you know, a knowledge worker. And then the, the next level kind of at a, a cultural level for the company, like how does this company exist and operate as an organism? How does it extract value from its resources to produce some value in the, into the world? And then the the sort of third level, maybe the micro level you might think about is the actual manager. And what is the what is the manager-employee relationship and how is the manager supporting that employee? How do you think about the difference in a manager's job in representing the organism itself versus representing and advocating for the individual? Super tough. And those who do it really well 
they're game changers because you know both of those both of those organisms have needs and it is that is the manager's job is to kind of be the in between sometimes the buffer for one versus the other but really when it's not the buffer you know kind of in a reactive state they're proactively thinking about how do i feed both of these beasts to <laughs> for which i'm partially responsible yeah. And, you know, really thinking about sometimes and, and, you know, I think about this, you know, as a father, balance on a daily basis isn't perfect. I think even to think about balance on a daily basis is absurd. And, you know, sometimes I'm going to spend a ton of time, quality time as a father. Sometimes I'm going to spend a lot of quality time on my business. And some days one might be more neglected, not in the general like awful sense, but just on a day-to-day basis might be neglected just based on pure hours I'm spending or what my energy, where my energy is devoted. The net experience, I want to be balanced. And so, you know, that's the, that's how I think of a really good manager too. Can you look at them, their net attention, their net energy, and is it balanced between the organization and the individual? And if it's not, kind of over time, you probably have a problem. But if it is, ooh, that's a that's a probably a really good mm-hmm. manager. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is a a very succinct definition of what a manager's job is. Balancing the needs, being the buffer between the needs of the organization organism and the human organism that they manage and it, it's almost right simplified level to think about balance yeah. at yeah 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 and, and you know a, a lot of my work not not to go into this right now because i know we'll get there but a lot of my work as a coach and as a consultant is you know i'll, t- I'll tell a lot of my you know whether it's a ceo or a cfo i actually don't care about your bottom line and and i, I don't I do, but in terms of my work with these teams, my assumption is the bottom line is getting plenty of attention, you know, especially with the individuals that I'm working with. I know what their obsession is. I know what they're losing sleep over. It's not the stuff that I talk about. They're losing sleep over this other stuff. Awesome. So I just actually want to create a little bit more mm-hmm. balance say, hey, you know, for the next two hours together as this team, we're not going to talk at all about the business. We're going to talk about the context, which is all of us and the work that we're doing. My belief is, and you know, and I have my own anecdotal evidence and a, a decent data set at this point to say all of this is actually just creating more ease, so that when you go back to obsessing about the bottom line or EBITDA or whatever you know number du jour it is, that that you do that with more ease and more humanity, and that's really you know how can we. Um, how can we create that balance again? So the net effect is this recognizing that on a day-to-day basis, it's going to get out of whack. Mm, I love that. Cause it, it's the, the, the sort of chronic condition that we might say is coming up with, with many managers is having too much of a focus on what the business needs and your job you consider as a coach to provide more of that balance, to, to pull them back into the human aspect of it. So then they can better have, have a balance going back into work. Totally. And, and I think that that because it's just natural for us to care so much about this thing, again, whatever that quantitative measure is, thank, thank God people are focused on it. Jobs are at stake. Returns are at stake. Investments, shareholders, whatever it is, this is what 
individuals within business, their own equity, for Pete's sake. This is what they are thinking about and what they're putting a lot of stock into. That's great. So how can we just pull it back a little bit and just say, hey, there's there's this other stuff to keep, keep focusing, keep obsessing, keep doing all of that. And I think that we need actually support in doing so. Otherwise, all of our attention is going to go in that direction. Again, it makes sense why. And we just need some support to say, hey, remember this other stuff too. It, it, it is important. And I promise you it will feed and support this other stuff that you think is super important, even if it feels kooky or like you're taking the eye off the ball for the set for a second. What are, what are some of the tools or frameworks that as a coach you find most useful, but maybe you started working with in the context of this class? Yeah three kind of ideas for me that I think are really valuable at the individual level. And then if you extrapolate it up to the collective, also have real benefits and returns. So the first one is, what does it mean to take responsibility versus blaming and criticizing? You know, and we'll get into this in a minute with, you know, with the conscious leadership, I know, but that's where this comes from. It also just comes from me just, you know, living a life at this point where I know where my energy dips and I'm me observing others where their energy dips. When we're in a state of blame or criticism, we have very little access to learning. We have very little access to possibility. We put the blinders on and we just get obsessed with who or what is wrong. And we just become assholes in the process. <laughs> all of us, by the way. And, you know, we all know people who their go-to is to blame and criticize. They're prob- sometimes they're brilliant and sometimes they're hilarious. But in terms of creativity, in terms of innovation, in terms of problem solving, inclusivity, they're not the best. And we have good reason to believe science and just anecdotal evidence to suggest that when we're innovative, when we're creative, when we're open to different perspectives and learning, the end product benefits. And so that's number one in working with teams and individuals that I go with. Number two, staying curious versus being right. We are hardwired to be right. Ever since we were little kids, all we wanted to do was make our caretakers, whoever they were, happy. And we got, we made them happy by being right. And then we go to school. And if we're, we get the right answers, we get the right grades. And then if we get the right grades, we get into the right college. And then if we get into the right college, we get the right job and blah, 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 blah. And on it goes, all of this being reinforced for being right. So we love to be right. And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If I'm out on the African plane and I don't really have the sophisticated brain that I have now, and I look out on you know, the horizon, I don't need all of the information or data to draw the conclusion that I'm right about that lion charging towards my people and that I need to get out of there. I don't need to feel teeth or run my hair, hands through a, a mane to understand I'm right about this and there's something to do. I'm not open to curiosity in the moment. I'm open to survival. We've evolved a lot, but we're still like this and we get it wrong. You know, there's plenty of books out there to read about this. We know how erroneous we are and the conclusions that we draw when we are convinced that we're right. And so what does it mean to take a step back and just go, what would curiosity look like in this moment? Not when a line is under, is coming at us. No, just be right then. But a lot of the time, it's not that. And we have space if we can drop our egos and all of our preoccupations with self-preservation and actually get curious about our surroundings, we realize this isn't that scary. And in fact, if I'm curious, I have a lot to learn. 
from others, from myself. And in fact, I might not be looking at the situation with any degree of real data. I just have some experience inside of me that's saying danger or scary or whatever else. If I get curious, then I can kind of shift. So that's number two. Number three, and this is kind of my favorite, especially within the workplace, feelings. Oh my God. You know, we'd like to make rational decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Make rational decisions. Let's be reasonable. Let's be data centric. All of these things that we say in the workplace. And it's just like, okay, I get it. All of like, yes, hooray for data. And yes, let's be reasonable. And yes, let's be rational. And we are human beings, which means we are emotional. Even the most highly rational individuals that we know, they're still emotional. Great. Let's not see that as a liability, but as a resource, as an asset. How can we use the emotions that we have to actually create a more inclusive environment, especially when I'm working with female executives? They have been told, most of them, especially if they've had a large degree of success and are in leadership positions, that they're too emotional or there's even other words that have been used specifically unfairly for women as it relates to their emotions in the workplace. We want to shift that. And I think we are shifting that. And if I can get, you know, kind of woo for a second, the workplace has been defined by overly masculine principles for, for decades. And there is, if you kind of just look at masculine and feminine energies, and I'm not talking about gender here, by the way, I'm just talking about energies that both live inside of us. We've tipped too far towards masculine. Masculine is rational. It's responsible. It's all of these things. And again, it has nothing to do with men. It's masculine energy. Feminine energy balances that. It's creative. It's emotional. It's intuitive. And as we move and evolve the workplace, we're going to rely more on those. This is not to say that we're going to poo-poo data or the rational things, but we're going to invite a merging of the two as opposed to overvaluing and then dismissing, which I think is what we've done. And so what can we really do to invite feelings into the workplace, to allow them to recognize that this is another information center that we have available to us. And when we pair our emotions with our mind, which our mind craves data, that's where the magic happens. If we overvalue what's happening up here, we're going to miss out and we're going to alienate and we're not going to involve and we're not going to allow. And I think that our solutions are going to suffer and certainly people are going to suffer. How I express emotion in the workplace is, you know, is different than Andy, is different than Nico, is different than others. And how can we create more space for people to continue to be productive? Because this is the big fear. If you get emotional, then you're not going to be productive. You're going to cry all day or you're going to do whatever else. I don't know that we have a whole lot of evidence to suggest that that's true. Um, people get stuck for sure. They get stuck in their heads too. Oh my God. So, you know, that's just how can we, move? yeah, yeah, that's right. How can we embrace that? How can we make more sense of it? Allow that, use energy, emotional energy to, to inform our decisions. You know, anger, anger in the workplace doesn't mean that I'm going to flip a table or yell at someone. Anger can also create clarity. This is not okay with me. I'm actually a no. I teach this to my clients a lot. In organizations, we just fall into the organizational knot. Yes, I can do that. Yes, I can do that. Meanwhile, inside you're going, there's no way 
I can get that done by Thursday this week. I know it, they know it, but I say yes because I'm supposed to. And I'm worried that if I say no or my yes has some nuance to it, they're going to think I'm a slacker or they're going to think this or that or that. There's a fallacy there. And the fallacy is we can be actually more open with what our experience is, more honest, more in integrity with self and others and the organization and, you know, benefits. Got on a little bit of a soapbox there. Wow, look at me. (laughs) Must like feelings. <laughs> so, so Kenzie, I'm hoping you'll correct me if I'm misreading this, but it, it feels like a lot of that is, we're, we're about to segue to conscious leadership, but that a lot of what you're talking about here is also kind of like the core of conscious leadership. Am I thinking about that kind of in the right way or? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, those three things that I really focus on, those can be found in, you know, kind of what I view as the foundation of conscious leadership. It's kind of those first six Mm -hmm. principles. So, you know, if you're, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with the book, I would say pick it up. You know, the first six commitments is what they call them, really critical. And those three are just pulled out of those six. And the book is 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So so how did you first come to conscious leadership and would love, especially like if there's any kind of like circumstances of your life or like what made it resonate for you to, to hear some yeah. of that story. Oh yeah. This one, this one is like a, a collision of professional and personal, uh, probably why it, it stuck for me. I encountered um, Jim, Jim Dethmer, who is one of the authors of conscious leadership, one of the co-founders of the conscious leadership group. And I think one of our greatest teachers alive, one of our greatest coaches, you know, when he was interviewed on the Tim Ferriss podcast, you know, he talked about himself as a, I can't remember if he used this word, but it's more or less a thief. He, he just, he thieves good ideas and he synthesizes them because he is a master communicator. He's able to bring them all together and then teach them in a way that's really succinct and practical. So I just, I do view him as a teacher and he is, he's world class. Um, you know, he's just, he's up there for me. And so I encountered Jim when I was working in Chicago at a startup and we were growing rapidly, kind of had hit unicorn status pretty quickly and lots of hiring, lots of change, lots of emphasis on culture. And Jim came in to coach the executive team of which I was a part and really instilled the principles of conscious leadership within the organization. The what happened in my mind is I went, oh my God, this is really practical and lines up with kind of what I've observed over a lifetime, what I learned as, you know, a, a social scientist. Nothing feels off, nothing feels too woo. And if we if we actually do this and embed this within the organization, the individual benefits and so does the organization. It didn't, it felt like that balance that we talked about at the beginning. So that was where I encountered Jim. So it just kind of made sense to me. It started to click. At the same time, I was about a year removed from being a very devout practicing Mormon. It was the kind of the belief system that had defined my entire life you know, for a variety of reasons that we could get into in another three-hour podcast. And uh, that, that all started to unwind for me in my early 30s. And then kind of all the way early 30s to mid-30s, I realized, I don't know if this is the the space for for my family and me to continue. And there was a lot of confidence there, but there was a ton of heartbreak. 
And the heartbreak for me was I loved it. It made so much sense to me. I built so much of my life into it. It was so much a part of the community. I was a part of the family that I came from. There was so much good there. And to see that it wasn't serving my family me anymore was heartbreaking. That was the heartbreak. I think I didn't spend as much time there. I spent a lot of time in my head going, holy shit, now what? My entire worldview had been rocked. And even, even as a Mormon, and certainly now, and certainly then, you know, I can go to a pretty dark existential place pretty quickly. And that's where I was without that worldview that I had basically been nurturing since I could make sense of the world two, three years old, came from a very loving family. And now all of that was starting to dissipate. What now? And, um, you know, at about this time, I, I, I'm working in Chicago, I encounter Jim, I'm kind of this inner turmoil, my friendship community is shifting pretty dramatically, a lot's going on inside my head and my heart. And I met Jim, and I've told him this, but, you know, I made Jim my new prophet. Mormonism has a prophet and that person, that man, is someone that you look to for guidance, and you really don't question what the counsel is that comes from that person. And I missed that. And then in comes Jim. He's handsome. He's a man. He has white hair. He actually has a religious background. So that kind of resonated with me. And I was like, oh, thank God, a new religion. <laughs> and the more I got into it, the more I tried to make him that and make the principles my new religion. I kept failing mm. because they're not. They're not rules. And he's not going to tell me what's right or wrong. And in fact, there is no right or wrong in his world. There is no right or wrong in the principles. There is no way to be. There's only what is true for me. And that was a radical departure. And so, you know, for me, conscious leadership encountering Jim at a very pivotal point in my life gave me something to hold on to. I, I thought I was just copy and pasting religion because that felt normal to me. And I had built up a lot of muscle for that. It was painful then to realize that's not what this is. It's new. I had to build new muscle to actually live by principles as opposed to rules. I was really good at rules. <laughs> really. I just, I just was, I just was, but now it's principles. And that was a whole different thing. Jim's not a prophet but he could be a coach. He could be a mentor. He could be a friend. And once I kind of took him off that pedestal, which was, you know, a whole thing that we could get into. Once I took him off that pedestal and looked at him like that, it was just, then it was liberating. It was liberating to kind of live that way. And, and then realized, okay, this is awesome because yes, I'm doing this within an organizational context, but my whole shtick is I want people to have something that makes them, yes, a better employee, but also a better father, partner, friend, human being, member of this ecosystem that we call the world that we just happen to live on right now. And that that's to me where the principles really, really stick. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on talking about Mormonism, but there we went. Thank you so much for going there. I really appreciate that, you know, a, a very vulnerable look back at how you got to conscious leadership and and even how you adopted it at the beginning thinking of it as a new religion <laughs> I, I i'm so interested in 
in in in diving into kind of how you took him off the pedestal as a prophet. But I think you know before we we go there, I w- I would really love just just so we don't lose listeners, if if you could just define conscious leadership and give us a, a bit of the framework so we can so we can go back and and I have so many follow up questions. Perfect. So conscious leadership, really simply. If you break down the two words, consciousness, we could spin that lots of different ways. And it's, you know, it's made its way more into the mainstream vernacular. So the way that I think about consciousness in this context is consciousness is just awareness. If I am conscious, I'm aware of two things. I'm aware of what's going on inside of me, feelings, thoughts, breath, body sensations. I'm just aware. You know, I'm aware of it. You know, I, if I stopped talking for 10 seconds and just checked in right now and even looked at the two of you, things would happen to me inside that I could become aware of that's just being stirred by the image of the two of you on the screen. I'll, I'll tell you right now something that just came to mind. Nico, you look a lot like my cousin's oh. husband. And so every time I see you, and what's funny is they have a kid named Nico. Yeah, every time I see you, I'm just reminded of them. And then then my mind goes to soccer because she played soccer. So stuff is happening to me just by seeing your image. That's just me being aware of what's happening as a result of you just being you. You don't even have to do anything. And so that's consciousness, awareness of myself, awareness of others, the, the environment that I'm in. Before I go on to leadership, you know, we, so what's the benefit of that? The benefit is that, of that is we go unconscious all of the time. We text and drive, which is bananas. What I'm saying in the moment that I choose to text and drive, by the way, I do it sometimes because I go unconscious. I stop thinking about the fact that this little thing in my hand is more important than the one ton bomb I'm driving down the road at other bombs loaded with other humans. 300 people or so a day die in the United States from texting and driving, more or less, I think is the number, between 100 and 300. Regardless, it shouldn't be one person, and it is. And what's happening? Are these bad people? Do they they leave the house going, I'm going to drive my bomb straight at other people? They don't. They go, I'm going to get my car and I want to get from safely from point A to point B. And at some point along the road, they fog out. I fog out and I go this notification or this curiosity or this whatever or this urgent response is more important than what I'm doing. I go unconscious. Consciousness is about awareness so that leadership actually gets played out the way that I want it to. And leadership is not about some formal position within an organization. Leadership is impact. And now we know the higher the position, the more impact a person has. A president of the United States obviously has an impact on the world, on the nation, on people, on my news feed, right? It's just about impact. CEOs, big impact. They make a decision and it trickles down the organization. But, you know, we all of us as human beings, all of us as employees are also having an impact regardless of the position or status that we have within any system of which we're a part. Just like I told you, Nico, by virtue of you just looking the way that you look, you have an impact on me. And the impact is the memory of my cousin's husband. And then the attachment to other memories or thoughts that I have associated with those people. 
So that's the impact. Now you say words and you do other things that also have an impact on me, but that is really at the basis what we're doing at all times. We're having an impact. So conscious leadership, the more awareness I have of what's going on inside of me, what's happening around me, the, I increase the likelihood that I have the impact that I intend. Our intentions and our impact get screwy all the time. I leave the house intending to get from point A to point B. At some point, I go unconscious and I grab my phone. The impact is I get in a wreck. Not what I intended, but it's the impact that I have because I go unconscious. In organization or within any interpersonal relationship, the more unconscious we go, the more the impact that we don't want to have occurs. And sometimes that's harm. I think that there are sociopaths in leadership formal leadership positions. I do. I think that's rare. I think most individuals who have a negative, harmful impact on others are actually just at some point going unconscious. Now, that's not to say that harassment doesn't occur, that equities don't occur, that awful things don't occur within organizations. Yeah, great. Like, then there's hell to pay. And most of the time, we're not talking about that. We're talking about misunderstandings. We're talking about an interaction that just feels slightly off, and then I create stories about that person. Great example. Remember when the remember when the three of us talked the first time? Mm-hmm. I, there was a lot. It was a hectic day in my house. Cleaners, I think, kids, something else. We were talking about this podcast, and we got off. I didn't hear from you guys for a couple of weeks. And, and Andy, you actually addressed this when you responded. I created the story that I was a wreck. I was a mess. These guys, these guys want a buttoned up, good, productive podcast. And that was not me at my best. So I created the story that this was just, this just wasn't going to happen. And I felt some sadness around that and kind of did my own work around it. But that's the story. Andy, I didn't fully tell you this when you responded. You sent the email. You're like, hey, I hope you didn't like think that we'd forgotten about you or that we weren't interested. You sent this email. I was just like, and that's what we're doing all the time we're doing all the time and you know and i could have made it about you of you guys should give me a break it was a rough day this is what we do within organizations all this stuff and if we just kind of just calm it all down then we increase the likelihood that we have the impact that we want, that we don't create unnecessary harm. Of course, we're going to do things that disappoint people and other things. There's other workarounds for that. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's just kind of what's called to be living. But I'm talking about harm and impact. Yeah. So that's my that's my that's my experience. That's my definition of conscious leadership and why I think it's a a really great framework. Yeah, it's really helpful. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of being above or below the line? feels like that might fit in kind of in this area here. Love it. So above and below the line is just a, a, a way to describe the human state of being at any given time. I don't, this is not an exact science, but we're below the line most of the time. We're below the line most of the time because we so often operate from a place of threat and stress. We're out there, again, if we go back to the African plains, we're hardwired and designed to survive. So before we had all these words and the sophisticated mind, we just had our feelings, we were a little bit more animal, to detect physical threats so that we could keep ourselves and the people that we love safe. Now, over time, minds started to evolve. We started, this is before, you know, 
African plains, keep everybody safe. We had no sense of me or we. And then the ego started to develop so that we could plan for the future, so that we could learn from the past. There's this now this sense of me. Oh my God. Now that's our preoccupation to protect the sense of me. I want to keep my reputation high. The example that I just gave you of, you know, our first discussion about the podcast, my ego. Oh my God, what do they think about me? I switched out. I'm like, I'm like in my bedroom and there's people walking around. I, I, story, 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 ego, 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 below the line. I'm just fearing something and I'm preoccupied. This is the state that we exist in a lot of the time. It's okay. It's not bad. We're there because we want to source security, approval, and control. And we'll do anything that we can to get it when it's under threat. The trick is we make a lot of it up. And so we often stay below the line unnecessarily. One of my favorite books is called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers uh, by Robert Sapolsky, a brilliant scientist of Berkeley. And you know his whole, his whole concept there is a zebra gets attacked by a lion and it's stressed out or below the line until one of two things happens. It gets away from the lion or it gets eaten by the lion. When one of those two things happen, the system relaxes. System obviously relaxes when it's dead because it has nothing else to get away from, but it relaxes in the other way too, so that it can just go back to its normal above the line state. And so that it's not charged. That charge has a cost. We don't do this. We get away from the line and we're like, God, we sit around with our buddies. And we're like, the line was really fast today. The line, did you see his teeth? I think his teeth are bigger than they used to be. God, he seemed, he was grumpy. He was really, he was, he was meaner than usually. We talk about it and as a result, stay decidedly below the line and in a stressed out space and in the process have all kinds of harm that we're doing to our system. And by the way, the system around us, as I'm talking to you guys about what an asshole this lion was, I'm convincing you of something that's my reality that might not be yours. And then I spin everybody up. So that's below the line. Again, below the line, it had value while I was getting away from the lion. After that, it didn't. And so that's when I want to shift to above the line. Above the line is a place of play. It's a place of curiosity. Play is actually a big one to go back to employee motivation and performance. If people have a sense of play at work, motivation goes mm -hmm. up. And this doesn't mean that they're treating work lightly. It doesn't mean that they're not taking it seriously, that they're just kind of screwing around and one-off projects. That's not it. But when work becomes play, when life becomes play, there's a sense of wonder. There's a sense of curiosity. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of experimentation and possibility. There's also a sense of rest. I think this is a big one for us learning coming out of the pandemic. We grind. I grind, you guys grind, a lot of people grind. And what does it look like to slow down? What do you learn about yourself? What do you learn about possibilities, about what you want? That's above and below the line. We're not below the line because something's wrong with us. We're below the line because we're human and because we care about ourselves and about others. The key there is to understand when am I going there unconsciously and making that my default place to live as opposed to can I switch and live above the line? Wonder, 
again, curiosity, play, possibility. So what are some of the, the methods to, to make that switch? Awesome question. The first question, anytime working with someone below the line is, are you willing? Because if the person is too threatened and they're not willing and the situation is too serious, they're not going to shift to above the line. So the first question is willingness. That is the first step. And if someone's not willing, if I'm not willing to shift to above the line, I'm not going to make it some big deal because nobody gets to a true above the line place through force or coercion. It just doesn't happen. That's pressurizing an already pressurized system. Think about being below the line as you're hunkered down. Again, the zebra getting away from the line. That's a stressed out position. By telling myself, I need to be different than I'm currently being, more stress on an already stressed out system. Not going to work. Or it's going to work momentarily, but it's not going to stick. So the first question is willingness. Are you willing? Are you willing to, to explore another possibility? You know, and let's just give you three things that I kind of work with. There's lots of different tools and it's highly contextual about how to shift. But the first thing is just, am I willing to just breathe? And this doesn't have to be some complex meditation. Am I willing to breathe for 32 seconds? Box breathing or four by four breathing, four seconds in, four seconds out, four rounds, 32 seconds. Can I just give this a second? Because I know, and the two of you know, when I'm locked in below the line, not much intentionality is occurring. I am on autopilot. Stories are spinning. I'm not given space for much of anything other than my own preoccupation for whatever thing it is that I'm dreaming up. So will I breathe? That's number one. Number two, would I be willing to move my body? And when I say move my body, it means lots of things to me. It could mean go for a walk. It could mean dance. It could mean take a wiffle ball bat out and slam a pillow. It could mean gripping, making myself move, making animal sounds. You know, we are animals. And if you go back to the zebra or you go back to a dog or, you know, watch the way that they allow energy to move through them. They don't have the stories in their minds. So energy comes up, dog bears its teeth when it's angry wags its tail, tongue wags when it's happy, and it's feeling energy. But a dog gets afraid or it gets angry, and then that thing, the trigger leaves. It doesn't, again, sit around thinking about it or talking about it. It moves, and sometimes they shake. And that shake is just a way to release the energy. You know, this is somatic therapy. Is a, It's why it's so powerful overcoming PTSD, because it's really allowing the body to move what's been trapped within the cells, trauma. And so at a small level, when we're below the line, we're just gripping. And so can we move our body? So that's number two. Number three, am I willing to look at the situation from the opposite of what I'm currently looking at? Not to convince myself that I'm wrong or that somebody else is right, but just so that I can open up to the possibility That the story that I'm telling myself, the opposite could be as true. And I just play with it. And then again, there's lots of questions to ask under that. And this is a this is a process of inquiry that really comes from the work of Byron Katie, of which I'm a huge fan. If that's you know something that listeners are curious about, that's where that comes from. And there's a whole process of inquiry that goes along with it. Transformational. 
Because if I have access to looking at a situation from the opposite of what I'm currently looking at, I have a chance of exploring the possibilities, the wonder, the awe of the situation. So those are the three that I kind of start with. Lots of different directions to go in with each one of those and additional ones. But for me, willingness. And if I'm willing, great, let's explore then something else so that we can get to this place where it's playful as opposed to threatening. Very cool. How often do you find yourself doing this just kind of for yourself throughout a typical day or week? (laughs) Once an hour. (laughs) It's actually, you know, it's, it's the thing that I, I really reinforce with my clients is being below the line is natural. It's not bad. It just is. And can I be aware of it? Can I be conscious of where I'm at right now? And can I accept that this is just where I'm at right now? Just where I'm at. And it probably makes all kinds of sense. And I don't need to figure out why I'm there. The why is actually irrelevant and usually inaccurate. Me in a triggered space has more to do with something that happened when I was six than what's happening in front of me right now. It just is. I am just this, I'm a plant. I'm a plant that's been out here in the world and I've experienced lots of different storms and I've experienced care in different ways and I've experienced neglect in different ways. And every time that happens, me as a little plant, I just get a little nick on the stem or I lose a leaf or a a twig gets bent. And that's never going to change about me. And that's okay. And as a result of that, different things are going to stir me up in ways that aren't going to stir you up, Andy. And that's okay. And vice versa. Can I just be okay with that? Can I accept that? Recognize, oh, man, I'm a scared little plant right now. I'm worried that the sun's never going to come back out. Or I'm worried about this, this caretaker that I have that's in, that's in charge of watering me is going to forget about me here on this windowsill or in this desert or whatever it is. It's all that's happening. Can I just accept that I'm scared? Now, can I? am I willing to look at the situation differently? Yeah. And then I, you know, dip into my bag of tricks and see which one resonates for that particular time. And then, you know, go through my own work, which is just, is always going to be a part of my practice and my existence. I'm, I'm never going to arrive and be above the line at all points, you know, enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. It's not there. You know, I even Ram Das, you know, who, again, an amazing teacher, when he talks about when he had his stroke, you know, and I mean, he, he was so enlightened at the point of his stroke. And he talks about the depression that he went into because he couldn't talk. He couldn't do the things with his body, with his mouth, the way that he had always done. And that's how he made his money. It was a huge part of his identity. And so he sunk into this deep depression and had to do his work around the fact that he was now an individual who had had a stroke, part of his little plant material had been affected. And now this was his new reality and that was his new work. And I think that that's going to be true for all of us for the rest of our lives. It's not to arrive at a place where I'm constantly above the line. To want that, desire that is foolish. It's a waste of energy. The work is I'm going to be below the line a lot of the time. And what do I do when I get there? Can I accept myself? Can I get willing to shift above the line so I'm not, so I'm more zebra like <laughs> and less, <laughs> less ginsy like? <laughs> Yeah, I I find that reminder that figuring out why you're below the line just doesn't matter. It's unhelpful and probably wrong. 
it, it's just so useful for me because I, I my, my habit is to troubleshoot and you can go yeah. deep down that rabbit hole and it just leads nowhere. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So earlier you mentioned the book, 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And I think it'd be useful just to kind of like dip a little bit into that. And to start out with like, what is a commitment? Yeah, so a commitment is just just me saying I'm dedicated. I'm dedicating my energy to doing this thing, whatever this is. So let's say I have a commitment to taking responsibility. Kind of one of the things that I talk about, one of the things that I'm working on with my clients. I have a commitment to taking responsibility versus blaming or criticizing. A commitment just means this is where I'm going to devote my energy. Commitment does not mean that I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to slip below the line and I'm going to blame and criticize sometimes. I'm going to blame and criticize myself. The commitment then is not, God, I'm such a screw up. Maybe I'm not committed to that. Commitment then is I want to recommit to taking responsibility and go through the process to move my energy back in that direction. Because all that's happened when I've decommitted or fallen off the wagon or whatever you want to call it is I've just committed to something else. And it's catching myself. I've committed myself to blame and, and blame and criticism. Wait, but I said my commitment was here. Great. I slipped below the line. I got scared and I just went here. I want to now recommit to taking responsibility and I want to keep doing it. The reason that commitments are so important and it's so easy to, to slip out of them and then to slippery slope away from them is as soon as I don't go to the gym for a couple of days, even though I say I'm committed to going to the gym, I don't go. And then I just kind of start ugh, two days, becomes three days, becomes five days, becomes whatever else. And then I become deeply committed to not going to the gym. A commitment is it's a constant check back to where do my values and where do my ideals align so that I can come back and miss the gym for two days. Okay. I got committed to something else. I want to recommit to the gym. And I do that by going to the gym. And so a commitment is just that. It's this sure. constant process of drifting away from it and then shifting back to it. And, and for the, uh, of the 15 commitments for conscious leadership, are there particular ones you find particularly like useful in your coaching work? Yeah, I would go back to taking responsibility, being curious, and feeling feelings. Those are the three. I'm gonna, you know, and I I talked about those in in depth a a few minutes ago, and I I can say more about them if you want. And I'll just say those three for me, working with individuals and working with teams. These teams that I work with, they got a lot of things on their mind. They got a lot of things that they want to get done. The last thing that I want to do is overcomplicate that. And so if I just come in and I say, hey, we're gonna work on taking responsibility, being curious, and feeling feelings and hammer it home and do it again and again and again and keep practicing until the muscle is built. Awesome. Awesome. They're going to be in pretty good shape. Those commitments. I'm going to be in pretty good shape. I love how those commitments, and and I'd love you to speak to it, how those commitments play with each other. They feel so intertwined in that if you're taking responsibility, which means you're not blaming, but that requires you to be curious about how are you responsible? What are the ways you're responsible for whatever situation you might be in? And 
the feelings that you feel are often at blame, are unconsciously causing situations that you might not, that might not be aligned with your intentions. Can, can you talk more just about how those things like play with each other? I think you just did it really well. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll elaborate and say a little bit more, but you're, you're absolutely right. You know, taking responsibility is really about at its core, I'm taking responsibility for the outcome that I got that I did not want, which is usually where we go to blame and criticism. I'm going to come back and go, okay, can I get curious about what happened here without blaming and criticizing? Can I just get curious? Can I take responsibility for my portion of this? Not over-function and not under-function. You know, over-functioning, I start blaming myself. Under-functioning, I'm blaming somebody else. And so can I just find that sweet spot where I get really curious about, huh, that didn't play out the way that I planned. What's going on? What are my feelings associated with this? And, you know, what we usually get to in my work is fear is under so much of what we do, of what we experience. And that makes sense. Something doesn't go as planned. I get scared. Is this going to happen again? What did I miss? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? Just fear. And can I allow that to be there? And again, work through it from a place of I'm feeling fear. Just, just notice what happens when I say that. Ah, it didn't go as planned and I'm feeling fear. Of course you are. But we don't talk like that. That's, that's really powerful in taking responsibility. We don't need to unpack my fear or my childhood <laughs> every time I feel fear. We don't. We just need to recognize it. What is it? What do I not know that I want to know? That's usually what fear is. Then we start to unpack things from a simpler level as opposed to unpacking them from the story or the mental mm. level, which... You know, especially when I'm dealing with smart people like the two of you, like my clients, man, this is a really good muscle. And the imaginations and the and the, and the, the rabbit holes. It's a wonder anybody gets anything done. <laughs> it's like the greatest asset and the greatest liability at the same time. And so can we just quiet that a little bit so that you can actually utilize it as the asset mm -hmm. that it is? But that's, that's to me how those three really work together. And in any issue that a client comes to me with, I'm going to be able to, we're going to talk about curiosity. We're going to talk about responsibility. What are you feeling? And then we're going to go at it from that space. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah, that your question? Yeah, Nico? for sure. And, and it really cool. gets at something that I wanted to go back to that you mentioned earlier. And how do you use feelings and emotions as a resource? And I, I would love it if you could share a story or an example um, either from one of your clients or from your own past that that does that, that uses that effectively. And and specifically, I think something you said earlier around creating more balance in masculine and feminine energy in a workplace. Like what does that look like when when done well? Yeah. And if you have a story, I, I think I think that'd be a great way to exemplify that. Awesome. Yeah. Let me start with the story and we'll kind of go from there. I was working with a client, a partner at a very large law firm, and had been a partner for a while. And had this recurring fear that she was going to get fired. Now, based on her level of productivity and the people that she worked with and the portion of the firm that was generated by her clients, <laughs> really unlikely she was going to get fired. Just was. And yet it was there in her, in every conversation she had, in every action she took. Nobody would have imagined this working with her because she was so 
good. This was her, this was her thing. This is why she reached out to me through a mutual friend and said, I need support. And we kind of did our work and, and I asked her when the last time was that she'd felt anger. And she goes, I don't, I don't get angry. And, you know, again, people on the surface interacting with her cheerful disposition, you're really nice to be around, really thoughtful person. You wouldn't think of her as an angry individual whatsoever. She said, I don't, I never feel angry. I'm just not angry. And uh, I said, I don't believe you. I don't. Like, of course, anger is there. It's there for me. It's there for others. I don't believe you. And by not recognizing it and honoring it, it gets metabolized into other things. Passive aggressive behavior, fear, avoidance, all of these things as opposed to letting the energy flow. You know, I said, you know, what's, what's so bad about anger? And she had a whole list of them. And then, you know, like many of us grew up in a home where the father was prone to anger or not many of us, not many of us have that experience, but we have an experience for at a young age that said, this emotion is bad. And anger is a really easy one to label bad. People get impulsive. People get in bar fights. People, bah, 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 bah. my dad, when he got angry, or my mother, when she got angry, this is what happened in our house. Start assigning meaning to the emotion as opposed to separating the behavior from the emotion. So now anger is bad. And I asked her, tell me about a situation you didn't like that happened recently. That was it. She told me. And I could tell as she was telling me her jaw was locking like she was like she was either ready to punch or take a punch it was that kind of look and it was actually you know i paused her and i was like i gotta tell you like this energy right now is awesome and she was like no i'm feeling so uncomfortable and i was like no no no, stay with it stay with it so she got back into it jaw was locked she looked like a fighter she really did and I said, what are you feeling right now? And she started talking about what she was thinking, not what she was feeling. I said, well, I just want you to allow the possibility that you're feeling anger. I want you to go off video and I want you to go off audio. And I want you to do whatever comes to you to match what you're feeling. We don't even need to call it anger. I'm going to call it anger. You call it what you want. I just want you to just do something. So she goes off the camera, goes off audio like two and a half minutes go by. I was like, well, she, maybe she left. <laughs> maybe this was, maybe this was too Esalen Institute for her. Maybe this was too much. Maybe, maybe I pushed it. She came back tears. And so what happened? She said, I screamed and I punched and I made noises that I haven't made since I was probably 10. And she just, her whole system settled. For me, what that story highlights is we block our emotions so often. And as a result, it's we are holding on to energy we do not need to hold on to. It does not serve us. It doesn't help those around us. The feminine, to go to your question, Nico, the feminine is free flowing of energy. It happens. We don't think about it. We allow it to move. We allow it to inform. And we don't let it sit. We don't turn it into thought. All that does is creates an emotive cognitive loop that we get stuck in where we're just manufacturing feelings at that point, feelings generated by thought as opposed to feelings being generated by the environment around us. 
and designed to do what they were designed to do make sense so that we know what to do next. And so the flow of energy is actually really powerful. This, this, you know, there was lots of other work to do with this particular client, but that was before that was the floodgates opened at that point is what I should say. She had access to so many other possibilities. The fear I'm going to be fired dissipated. It was just blocked anger. She got used to communicating with her anger. And here's the cool thing. Her colleagues loved it. They were like, damn. It was just this whole different energy because they could tell like she was being sneaky with her energy, passive aggressive, avoidant, all of this stuff that we do simply because she was uncomfortable with what she was feeling. When in reality, anger just pops up and it says something's not okay with me. Anger is designed to create boundaries. Not because I'm God or I'm looking for universal truths, just because I'm this tiny little plant who's been through some storms and has had care in certain ways. And I know certain things are okay with me and certain things aren't. A cactus is not okay with being overwatered. It gets angry when you overwater it. It gets mushy. It dies. That's okay. So don't water it so much. That's it. We are the same way. We all have our boundaries. Anger is a beautiful way to kind of set them. So that to me is emotions and energy in the workplace. We get so scared of them for no reason. And it's bringing the feminine energy in. That is flow. There was nothing rational about what we were doing. It was, and it was beautiful. Such a great story. (laughs) Are there particular like, breakthroughs that people typically have or like a a progression that people typically like develop through as they become more conscious leaders like it was really interesting to hear kind of the 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 detail on this this breakthrough the the woman you were working with she went through as she was becoming more conscious around anger like how does someone like build on that kind of on a longer time horizon and are there other similar kind of breakthroughs that you typically see love it you know, the, 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 the first, if I kind of walk you through the progression of an individual's consciousness, you know, or their journey, if this is something that they want to be a part of, the first thing is just awareness. You know, in her case, to go back to that example, she, was aw- she became aware that she was actually feeling anger. Awesome. So whatever it is, whatever the experience that we're having, whatever way that we're being, and some leaders, by the way, the awareness is I am deceptive. It's not always pretty. I'm out of integrity. Some people I work with, I am cheating on my spouse. I'm aware of that. After awareness comes acceptance. And then just accept that this is what I'm doing right now without making it right or wrong. Now, you know, some listeners may be like, no, no, no. If you're cheating on your spouse, you're wrong. I get it. That might be a deviation from something that you've committed to. And an agreement that is broken, that can have devastating consequences. But as soon as I start wronging myself about that, shame sets in. I get caught up in some cognitive loop. Can I accept that this is what I'm doing and where I'm at right now? Number two. Number three, can I be willing to be with this differently than I'm currently being? This is what we talked about with above and below the line. Am I willing to stop what I'm doing? Am I willing to be with this thing differently? And again, if the answer is no, okay, great. Keep working at acceptance. Willingness, then what I, for me, it's always, what do I want? 
what do I want? I may want to really grow within the job that I'm in. I may want a, a really successful exit of my organization. I may want to retain a lot of my employees, whatever it is. I may want to do something completely differently than I'm doing right now. Awesome. You know, and this is another, a little bit of a risk when I'm working with clients too of, I am not, I'm not coaching to a certain outcome. I had this case last week where a pretty prominent executive that I was coaching and I'd been hired by the CFO to work with her team came to me and said, I've got a job offer on the table. I don't know what to do. Now, because the CFO hired me, you could think, well, I'm going to manage this person in this particular direction and I'm uninterested in doing that. And my client knows this. That would be a misuse of kind of my guidance, a manipulation of the influence that I have over this person. I'm deeply interested in what does that person want? And because they've been on the journey for a while, they, had, they didn't have to get through the other stuff. They could really focus on what it was that they wanted. But without, with all the other stuff kind of loose out there, if I'm not aware, if I'm not accepting, if I'm not willing, really tough to have a conversation around wants. It's just, they're, they're, they're just messy. They're jumbled. They're kind of mixed up with all kinds of other stuff. So to me, that's the progression and it's continual. It's to go back and readdress those things at different point to understand that wants shift. Great. That makes sense to me. Let's figure out how to make sure that you're fully owning them so that you're taking responsibility for them so that you're not just going after what you want sneakily or deceptively. You're doing it above ground, fully communicating with the people that are in your orbit. Otherwise, I'm going to start trying to get what I want and hang on to what I got and do all this other stuff that we just tend to do as humans because we're full, we're afraid of letting go of what we've got. It brings us security, approval, and control. And if I want something different, uh, God, what might happen? So that to me, that's the journey, you know, and it's, you know, it looks different for, for different people in different ways, but you know, that's the, that's the progression. Cool. What does conscious leadership look like at more of the, the team or the organizational level? Yeah, I think it's just, it's really about getting people more open more vulnerable so that they can speak with candor. I'm really good. I, I'm really glad I didn't. I, sometimes I say candor and I was, I, real quick aside, I was, mm-hmm. I was doing this big workshop. It was like in front of 150 people and I kept saying candor. And one of my friends who was in the audience afterwards came up to me and he was like, hey, he was like, that was awesome. Loved it. But you made candor sound like a mountain in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make our journey to candor. <laughs> So <laughs> within teams, all we're looking for is we're looking for more candor. We, we really are. Do I feel safe being open? And does my openness, is the, is the primary motivator behind my openness so that you get to see me or so that I get to control you? If I'm being candid so that I control you, that's not candor. That's what we do naturally to get control. It's manipulation. It's okay. It's what we do, but that's not candor. Candor is I'm being open so that you can see me in the experience that I'm having. I'm allowing you to have the same thing. I'm not making your experience my experience to manage or control, but I am allowing you to have it and creating space for it so that we can get back to what it is that we're doing, which is, you know, run this company or whatever else. So that to me is really what it means to take responsibility. I'm taking responsibility for my experience. 
and I'm empowering you to take responsibility for yours. I'm not seeing you as a victim of circumstance. I'm not seeing the organization or the market or the recession or whatever it else it is as the villain. And I'm not going to hero the situation by going into overdrive just to make sure everybody's okay. Good luck. You'll exhaust yourself. It's one of the ways that we stay below the line, seeing situations or people as heroes, victims, and villains, big part of conscious leadership as well. And that's just what it means to be below the line. So the whole thing in working with teams or in an organization is how do we, how do we really live this stuff through the way that we interact, through the way that we own the experience that we're having, as opposed to thinking that it's being controlled by this, uh, you know, by this puppet master that we have no control over. Another quick aside, you know, a client that I was working with, he had all these stories, pretty high level in the organization, but not C-suite, had all these stories about how decisions were being made. And, you know, his work was, can you be open to the possibility that the making the people making the decisions have no idea what they're doing? <laughs> they're just as clueless as you. They're just as scared as you. They're just as vulnerable as you, maybe even more so because they know the decisions they make have a big impact. And those people, they're good people. But to think that they have it all figured out or they're being nefarious in their decision making or they're being absolute in their decision making, they're not helpful. Mike Mullins, who was the Joint Chief of Staff under Second Bush and Obama, he was an advisor at one of the companies I worked with in Chicago, and he'd meet on a regular basis with the executive team. You know, he talked about decision-making at that level, and especially Obama with some of the decisions that he made in the Middle East and, you know, his pursuit of Obama, all of these things. There was this, one of the things that made him a great leader was he was decisive and willing to make decisions and also recognize A, they weren't right or wrong, they weren't black or white, and no matter what he decided, there were going to be some awful consequences. He allowed all of them and held space for all of that and really made it important that he had people around him that could support him in that because that is tough. So anyway, that's, you know, within organizations, within teams, that's really, that's going to be the work or the things that I focus on. So last question, I think we'll transition to rapid fire. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about remote teams. So a, a lot of, you know, what you're talking about, it's, it's very personal you know, work that people are doing with themselves. There's a lot about just the, the the interpersonal dynamics and assumptions you're making about people and all of that. And are there particular challenges that you see remote teams or remote leaders struggle with or the other way around, like particular areas where say maybe they're successful in ways or things are easier for them in ways that, that in-person leaders or teams are not? Yeah. Gossiping on Slack, brutal. And Maybe even more damaging than gossip. By the way, gossip is going to happen in the workplace. It just is. There's too much at stake and we get scared and we need other people to see our reality our way so that we feel safe. It's all we're doing when we're gossiping. Gossip on Slack are places that we can really vent. It feels productive, but man, that's, a, that's there. It's there and it can kind of feed negative energy. And it's just people wanting to connect. And so in a virtual environment, what are we giving people space to connect with one another in productive ways? You know, because the social aspect of work is so big and me going and having an informal conversation with this person or that person because they, you know, they work just 
down the room for me, really, really powerful and productive and has defined the workplace for so long. You take that out of the equation and people are, they want it. They're looking for it. And so sometimes, because we're just the way that we are, we're going to do it in unproductive ways. Great. So how can we give people productive ways to do that? You know, virtual sessions like the one that we're having today where we're actually talking about feelings, where we're practicing things outside of just our day-to-day work, really, really valuable. Um, And that may sound convenient because that's my job, (laughs) right? And I really do, even if it weren't, it would be valuable. I know that I need it. There are people, there are other coaches, other consultants that I meet with on a regular basis just to share ideas and to get support and everything else like that because I get lonely. Mm. So I think you've got to be intentional about that. And where I'm seeing leaders really be successful is understanding that and recognizing that the two hours a month they devote to bringing the team together and having this kind of facilitated conversation pays real, real dividends. Mm. I, I I really love that because one of the, the main things I think about as a remote leader is being intentional about creating spaces that you wouldn't have to if you were in person. And that's exactly what I, what I took from, from that answer was we need to forcefully go on people's calendars, create a space, a facilitated space, so that in, in this example, we can acknowledge our, our emotions and do it in a productive way where those things can be helpful rather than you know, in a Slack DM where it can turn into these stories about why the lion's teeth were, you know, really sharp looking today. (laughs) Totally. That's exactly right. Now I'm just thinking of all the ways I need to bring this back to my work. (laughs) (laughs) Gancy, I think that you really exemplified one of the reasons why I love doing these shows. And that's We get a free hour of coaching (laughs) through this time period. (laughs) But alas, we are nearing the end of our time, and I have enjoyed so much of this. But before we let you go, we're going to hit you with a set of rapid-fire questions, which which I really enjoy because it gets to see some of the variety in the ways people answer them. And Andy and I will switch off on, on asking these questions here. But the first one, if you could share a story that illustrates what culture means to you, either personally or um, in your career. Yeah, let me, you know, something that I'm, I'm in right now. Huge acquisition. Um, one of the biggest acquisitions actually of 2021. You know, big old company bringing in another big old company and, you know, all of the, the fun and fireworks that come along with m- merging those two. And what I will say is that the... in is a client of mine, the leader of the acquired entity is has explicitly stated repeatedly the importance of culture first and the importance of meeting numbers, whatever those, you know, they have their own. And not just the lip service. It's really easy to say culture is important. It's just like, it's kind of what we say in organizations now, like culture is important. Great. I don't always believe people. I do believe that numbers are important because of all of the energy and focus and attention that goes to that. I'm not saying take away from that. I'm saying expand the pie and say, if culture is as as important, what are the measures? How much time and energy are you devoting to that? I promise you that if it's actually important, you're going to devote time to it And your constant concern of, am I balancing the culture 
with the objective quantitative realities of this organization. If you're concerned and you're putting time towards the tension and creating the balance, you'll figure it out. I say this to to people who are, you know, I want to have work-life balance. I I don't know what that means. And again, like we talked about at the beginning, it's probably not going to be a day-to-day thing. And if you think about it that way, you're screwed. But my net experience, I want to be a good dad. So for me, I have four kids. Like it's a big part of my life and always has been and will always be a big part of my identity. My professional identity is also really important. I always want the tension of I want to be a good dad and I want to run a really cool practice. And I just, I'm going to give attention to both of those things. And I'm going to tune into myself to when it gets wonky or out of balance, I'm going to correct because I'm unwilling to let either one of those things slide. And I think I do a pretty good, damn good job of it. And leaders who are saying, you know, these two things are important. Culture is important. So, you know, the client that I have right now, she's putting her money where her mouth is. She's investing a ton of time, energy, and money into culture. And I see it. I see what's happening. Doesn't mean that the acquisition is beautiful or seamless or anything else like that. But boy, is it benefiting from her emphasis on culture. All right, next one. So what do leaders too often underemphasize or overemphasize when it comes to remote company culture? Said another way, kind of like what's underrated or overrated? I think goes back to what Nico said, underrated is the intentionality around creating opportunities for positive, productive connection. Underrated in terms of not enough attention or intention is given to that. Overrated, what people are doing over the course of the day. I, there's a lot of movement around measuring employee time and productivity right now like there is you know login times and everything else like that that feels like a throwback to scientific management and frederick taylor to me which had its place in the evolution of the workplace but i get it i understand it and to me it comes from a place of fear deep deep fear so I think that that that's a trend that i'm watching with remote work that's i'm gonna watch really closely I have fear around it. I feel right about my perspective and I'm open to it evolving and being a way that it can be deeply supportive of individuals. But right now I don't know that it will be. Mm, Yeah. Okay. Next question. What work changes have you made personally since the pandemic started that you plan to carry forward? I don't say yes to anything I don't want to do. Doesn't mean that I'm not, it doesn't mean that I'm doing everything easy. But I really check in because I know what happens to me from a place of scarcity and fear and (laughs) wanting everybody to like me because I do. And I will say yes then to things as a result. I got to check in. And is this, does my, and my check is, does my energy go up or does it go down with this? This podcast is a good example of this. If I had met the two of you and been like, "Mm," I would have said no. Not because anything's wrong with you or wrong with me or wrong with the idea. It just, my energy didn't go up. I talked to you. My energy was up. I said, yes, it was easy. It was easy. And so for me, I'm constantly checking in. This is not something that I did before (laughs) at all. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. Especially as I, you know, by the way, I started my practice March 13th, 2020. Uh That was my first day of really launching 
you know, my practice lightly. So that's that, like, I wanted to say yes to everything in the beginning and did and suffered some consequences where I got involved in really long, intense work that did not serve me or the purpose or align with why I'm here on this earth. And, you know, for me, just saying yes to things is, is really, really important and getting clear around that. All right. Last one. So, so what yeah. non-business hobby or pursuit most influences how you approach your work? Psychedelics. Interesting. Now, I, I, you know, I could say, you know, there, there are other things that are deeply important to me. You know, being, being a father is like literally my favorite thing that I do on this planet and always, you know, always has been as much. In, and by the way, it's, it's a place that I get to teach and, and a place that I get taught <laughs> on a daily basis. That's always been constant. For me, psychedelics is more recent. Psychedelics is, has, you know, with consciousness and, you know, conscious leadership and kind of understanding a new way of being you know, psychedelics for me has been a play, a place where I've been able to reimagine where I've been able to, you know, and if you, you know, you watch how to change your mind on Netflix now, which I think is a really cool look at the book, the book's even better, but it's just an opportunity just to put a fresh layer of powder over the deep grooves that we form mentally. And all those deep grooves are, they're just stories that we've created and to go back to the, you know, the plant analogy that I've made a few times, which I, I honestly, I actually, it's, it's a convenient analogy. I also believe it. We are organic stuff. Like we are organic stuff. We are decaying. We can snap. We can break. There are things about us that are just flawed organically, just like every plant is different in purpose. And there's something inside of us. And this is where the mystical comes in that we do not understand. There is soul, there is something magical. There's something, you know, if, if, if this is material, there's something eternal too. And the meshing of those two is pretty extraordinary. And so how do we, how do we understand the, da- the dance between those two? Understand the, the tension that's created by eternal and material. How do we allow both of those to exist and recognize that every being that we're in, encountering is, is in the middle of the same messy dance and they have different organic material and they're different plants that have been in different storms and have had different caretakers and different forms of neglect. And oh my God, then, then your heart can burst mm. open for yourself for other people. And it doesn't take your desire to be productive down. It doesn't take your desire to be efficient, to work hard. All of these things that we value within the workplace, those things then just get to be fun because work, it's made up. It's not real. Ah. It's this place where we come, where we just get to use our good minds. We get to play with other playmates. We get to come up with ideas. It's like we're kids. We just have more responsibility and we know that that's the world that we live in. And so we give money for those things. As soon as it becomes too important or too much of our identity or too serious or too heavy damage occurs. And I think that we're, you know, we there's a reckoning occurring within the workplace, within organizational structures and has been building for a really long time. We know that inequities exist. We know that play does not exist in the workplace. We know people get harassed, that power is used to impose will upon others. And it doesn't have to be that way. So a really long way of saying psychedelics. 
just fresh powder, new ways of thinking, you know, and I had my very set ways of thinking. I collected, essentially, I spent the first 35 years of my life collecting answers. And I loved to be right. This is what was so disorienting for me about losing Mormonism. I intend to spend, you know, I hope 35 years and beyond collecting questions, Mm. new ways of being, new ways of seeing things. And to me, psychedelics isn't the only way to do that, by the way, but it's a, it's a turbocharged way to really open yourself up to different possibilities. And so my work in that space, which is by the way, highly intentional and, you know, sometimes might happen at a fish show, but most of the time happens at a, a really intentional way where I'm thinking and I'm using it to expand my own consciousness, increase my own compassion and bring it back to the workplace to say, Hey, this isn't just something that, you know, that hippies do that makes them tune in, check out all of the stuff that we've been taught about the dangers of psychedelics and the moral, you know, outrage that's been occurring for the last couple of decades. Now we're seeing a renaissance of, wait a second, huge benefits at the individual level for mental illness, for organizations, so that we can all get back to playing and, and, and supporting one another. So I would say for me, that's a, that's a huge part, you know, that we could go down other rabbit holes as well, but that's kind of what came to mind as you asked the question. And, and, and honestly, something that I wanted to, you know, to kind of bring into the discussion because I think it's important. And I I think we're just scratching the surface of the intersection of psychedelics and work. And, you know, you've got CEOs like, um, you know, Shane Heath at Mudwater and other places where you're seeing different ways of being with psychedelics and with work, you know, even, you know, I, he doesn't talk about it, but Yvonne Chouinard, look at what he did with Patagonia yesterday. I don't know if you saw this news, but, you know, he gave the company away. And I'm like, I'm like reading the, red, the, the fine print of like, yeah, what are the tax advantages and all of this other stuff? And he just wants to make sure that Patagonia continues to do what it's done on this planet for the entire time that he's run it. Oh, my God. There are so many different ways of being with work. And we get trapped into the fine grooves. And can we find ways meditation, psychedelics, having conversations like this, where we just fresh powder, fresh powder, fresh powder. Yeah. Ah, wow. Well, thank you so much for bringing us there. What, what a courageous way to, to end our conversation. And it's something that during this, this renaissance, I think the more times we can talk openly about psychedelics and the impacts that they've had on our lives, myself included, the more we can we can help to harness the benefits and do it in a responsible way that because it is, it is undoubted. I I do not doubt that there's a lot of benefit that can come from it. I am afraid that there'll be a backlash. And I think that the way that, that we talk about it contributes a lot to that. So I really appreciate you, you bringing it up and obviously appreciate the entire time you've spent with us today. I am so motivated to (laughs) <laughs> go on with my day now. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will will feel the same. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being so thoughtful with your questions for kind of creating a, a yeah, the scaffolding and taking us down some fun rabbit holes. Um, yeah, really, really appreciating the the consciousness with which you approached this conversation. Thank you. It's been a joy. And that's the show. Thank you, Gensi. That was a blast. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the People Everywhere show. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. 
And if you have feedback or you want to suggest a guest, or maybe you just want to say hi, well, you can send us an email at hi at peopleeverywhereshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can find a transcript of this episode on our website, along with all the other episodes we've done at peopleeverywhereshow.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for our mailing list. And that way you can stay up to date on new episodes as they come out. And that's it. We'll talk to you next time.